One day, a contractor somewhere in New England might be demolishing an old building. As a wall comes crashing down, he looks inside a hidden wall space and sees the remains of a burlap bag. And around the bag are small, tattered pieces of moldy green paper. Or maybe someday a family will be removing a deceased relative's belongings from an old house in Boston. They take up a dirty, faded rug and find an outline of a trap door on the wooden floor. They fetch some tools from the garage and begin to pry up the floor. In a crawl space, they find some old suitcases, water stained and falling apart. It doesn't take much to open them. Inside, they find piles and piles of what appear to be old bills. They're so brittle, they crumble at the touch. Far-fetched? Not really. In fact, these scenarios, or ones like them, will someday likely play out. Someday, someone will discover the remains of one of the biggest heists in American history. Somewhere, there is still over a million dollars unaccounted from the Great Brinks robbery of 1950. So mix up a Ward 8 cocktail and listen to this intriguing tale of daring and deceit, the not-so-perfect crime, the Brinks heist. It's been called a modern-day Ocean's Eleven, but aside from the fact that there were 11 gangsters involved in the heist, this real-life saga didn't have a lot in common with the movie. There wasn't a George Clooney look-alike decked out in an Armani tuxedo. Brad Pitt was nowhere to be found, nor was Matt Damon. And certainly, there was no Julia Roberts in a tight red dress. No, in this instance, we had a bunch of lifetime gangsters with nicknames like Fat Tony, Big Joe, Jazz, Specs, and Vinny. And they didn't share the loot. In fact, all of them ended up in jail or dead, and most of the money has never been recovered. What little money has been traced ended up in the hands of lawyers or in bail bondsmen's bank accounts. It's been said that there's no honor among thieves. The Brinks heist of 1950 proves that axiom. On the night of January 17, 1950, sometime after 7 p.m., Several men entered the Brinks building in Boston. They were wearing navy blue pea coats, chauffeur's caps, gloves, rubber-soled shoes, and Halloween masks. They didn't speak much, and they moved with a studied precision. They knew exactly where they were going. There were five Brinks employees in the building, the gang drew their guns and made them lie down on the floor. They tied their hands behind their backs and taped their mouths shut. It only took a few minutes for them to locate and drag several burlap bags outside the building and throw them into a waiting truck. 
They sped away with $1,218,211.29 in cash and $1,557,183.83 in checks, money orders, and securities. At 727, a Brinks employee called the police. Minutes later, officers arrived. They didn't find many clues. A chauffeur's hat on the floor, a roll of adhesive tape. The police and FBI immediately realized that this wasn't a spur-of-the-moment robbery. It required advanced planning and intimate knowledge. The cops began to put the heat on known criminals in the area, as well as investigating Brinks employees and salesmen and other tradesmen who might have occasionally been in the building, just in case it was an inside job. Brinks offered a $100,000 reward. Anonymous tips kept pouring in, phone calls and letters naming names. Most of these proved to be dead ends. Convicts got into the act as well. The FBI regularly received letters from people in prison promising to give up robbers once they were let out of prison. The cops put the heat on gamblers around the country. Maybe they thought the crooks had wagered money with bookies. They uncovered a lot of illegal gambling and shut down a lot of operations, but they didn't recover any money. But the cops did find some evidence that would eventually prove useful. Shortly after the robbery, some boys playing near the Mystic River found two revolvers that the cops had determined had been taken from Brinks during the robbery. Speaking to witnesses, they learned that a green Ford truck with a canvas top had been spotted near the Brinks building around the time of the robbery. In March, they discovered parts of that truck at a dump near Staunton, Massachusetts. The truck had been cut up with a torch, and many of the parts had been smashed with a sledgehammer. The parts were concealed in plastic bags around the dump. If the ground hadn't been frozen, undoubtedly, the crooks would have buried those bags and hidden that truck forever. It later turned out that the families of two of the suspects lived in Stockton. The police and FBI had some initial suspects that they focused on, but they didn't have any evidence. One of their prime suspects was Anthony Fat Tony Pino. He was a well-known case man, someone who would hang around prospective robbery sites and jot down the routine. He had an eye for detail, and the cops knew that this job required planning. A couple of weeks after the robbery, the cops questioned Pino. He had an alibi of sorts. He said that he left home at seven o'clock and then stopped by a liquor store at about 7.30 and talked to Joe McGinnis and a police officer. The police officer confirmed that indeed, Fat Tony had spoken to him. It would have been tight, but Pino still could have been at the robbery and been back to the liquor store by 7.30. Big Joe McGinnis was a well-known criminal and an ex-con. The police believed that he was entirely capable of planning the robbery. Like Fat Tony, however, he too left home at 7 o'clock and made it a point to talk to the police officer at 7.30. 
But the police realized Pino and McGinnis couldn't have pulled this off by themselves. They needed some help, some muscle, people with nerve and experience, guys used to handling guns. Enter Joseph James Spex O'Keefe and Stanley Albert Guscori, two other ex-cons. O'Keefe was legendary for holding up gamblers and shaking down bookies for protection money. Like Pino and McGinnis, coincidentally, they too said that they had both left home around 7 p.m. on the evening of the robbery. Additionally, their families both lived in Stratton, where parts of the truck were found. The police obtained search warrants of the relatives' homes, but didn't find anything. That June, O'Keefe and Guscoria left town. They were headed to Missouri, they said, to visit Guscoria's brother. Evidently, they needed some travel money and knocked over a couple of stores in Pennsylvania. They were arrested. O'Keefe eventually got three years. Guscoria got five to 20. They both fought their convictions, but in order to do that, they needed money. By 1954, the police were hearing rumors that pressure was being put on other Boston gangsters to contribute to O'Keefe and Gascoria's defense fund. Some of the names floating around that were being pressured were Fat Tony Pino, Big Joe McGinnis, Adolph Jazz Maffey, and Henry Baker. The rumor was that these guys had money to contribute because they worked with O'Keefe on what they called the big job. O'Keefe was getting a little miffed that his friends weren't contributing enough money to help him. There was some concern that he might talk. Henry Baker was another suspect. He was a friend of Pino. When he was questioned about his activities on the night of the heist, guess when he left home? Around seven o'clock. The same with Vincent Vinny Costa, Fat Tony's brother-in-law. A grand jury was summoned in Boston, but after hearing the evidence, they said that they didn't have sufficient evidence to indict anyone. J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, was convinced, though, that they had their men. He ordered the FBI agents to double down and get the evidence before the statute of limitations ran out in 1956. O'Keefe was released from jail, but immediately he was sent back to Pennsylvania to stand trial for another robbery. Massachusetts wanted a piece of him, too, for a probation violation. While he was out on bond, O'Keefe was observed trying to contact other members of the gang. He was becoming very bitter that they weren't contributing to his defense fund. O'Keefe was using every means at his disposal to get his share of the loot. By the summer of 1954, the whole thing started to unravel. Henry Baker, when he met with O'Keefe, pulled a gun on him, and the two exchanged fire. Two more attempts were made on O'Keefe's life that summer. Elmer Trigger Burke was arrested for one of them. He claimed that he was hired by the other gangsters to kill O'Keefe. O'Keefe was seriously wounded, but survived all three attempts on his life. He was later arrested on the probation violation and sentenced to 27 months in prison. As he stewed in prison, he had finally had enough. On January 6th, 
1956, he talked to the FBI. All right, he said, what do you want to know? And he sang like a canary. He told them that the idea to rob Brinks originated with Fat Tony Pino. And then Pino recruited the rest of the gang. They cased the building with binoculars. And one night, they entered and removed casings from some of the locks and then took them to a locksmith and had keys made and then snuck back in and replaced the locks. They drew a floor plan of the building and practiced the robbery right down to rehearsing the getaway route the night before. The money was hidden in various places around New England. In an attempt to age the bills, they were often placed in damp places, thinking that the new bills would age. Five days before the statute of limitations expired, 11 people were indicted. Guscoria died awaiting trial. And at the trial, Spex O'Keefe was the star witness. Most of the gang was sentenced to life in prison, except O'Keefe. For his cooperation, he got four years. Of the million two hundred thousand in cash, less than sixty thousand dollars has been recovered to date. By 1971, all the participants had either been paroled or had died in prison. Where is the money? Was anyone else involved? What do you think? Thank you, Dad. Another very interesting bank robbery heist story for us. We've been doing a lot of those this season. It's been fun. Mm-hmm. Talking about a new or a different type of crime than we normally do. So Yeah, no one even died in this one. That's good. We don't always want to talk about people dying, so that's, that's true. good. <laughs> well, um, before we get into talking more about this case, we will move on to our trends of the crime section. And this is the part of our show where I talk about fashion that was in vogue at the time of the crime or fashion that has to do with the crime in some way. So when I think of what people wear when they rob a bank or sneak around, they're wearing black, right? Well, except in this case, they were wearing navy blue, but I guess that's close to black. I know, but black is sexier to talk about than navy blue, so... I chose to talk okay. about navy, or I All chose right. to talk about black, and it has a richer history in the fashion world. Yes. So we're going to pretend they wore black, so that it makes more sense. Okay. Um, <laughs> and of course, they wore navy blue coats because that was the color of the Briggs uniform. So they right. kind of, if they'd showed up wearing black, that would have aroused some suspicions. Correct. So they were still trying to blend in. Yes. Which is why most wear black. So okay. It connects. See. I got gotcha. you. Okay. I call this section today, Black is the New Black. Ah. <laughs> and I got a lot of this information from an article called, and I swear, I thought of that title before I found this article, but this article was called, Only Black is the New Black, A Cultural History of Fashion's Favorite Shade by Mark Bain for Courts. So when we think of black, normally you think of it as a color of grieving. It's what people in the U.S. wear to funerals mm-hmm. or to weddings if they don't like the bride or groom, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
That's what I wore to your wedding. Yeah, I was just going to say, you wore black to my wedding. I did. <laughs> you love my husband. It's okay. Maybe it's me. It's because of me. I love your husband, yes. But there's two <laughs> people in a marriage, but we won't go there. <laughs> right. <laughs> black has been the color of grieving since the ancient Greeks. While the color has always been praised for its stylishness, even back with the ancient Greeks, it gained massive notoriety in 1926 with, we've talked about this before, Dad, here's a quiz. Okay. With what? In 1926. What designer? Coco Chanel. And her? Little black dress. Nice. Or the LBD. Yes. Prior to the LBD, black was the color for domestic workers and retail shop girls. The, the LBD started a new era in women's fashion. Black was promoted as smart, elegant, and attractive. Vogue called the LBD the Ford of a woman's wardrobe on its 1926 cover. What did they mean by that? The Ford? I'm guessing they meant accessible and uh, popular. Affordable, maybe? Affordable, right. Yeah. Just like the everyday look, maybe. Was right. what I thought. They didn't elaborate, but that was what I was thinking. When when Henry Ford started selling Model T cars, he said you can get them in any color you want, as long as it's black. Yep, black clothing can make the body look neater and smaller. It makes an imperfect body look perfect. Uh, except I don't like how I look in black personally. It makes me look ten times paler than I already am. But whatever. So that doesn't apply to everybody. For men, black is seen as dignified and level-headed. Dad, do you know who Bo Brummel is, was, is? Uh, no, though I, I see in some notes that someone prepared that he was the inventor of the modern men's suit, but I've never heard of him. <laughs> yes. Uh, I feel like he was something else, too, maybe. I don't know. Anyway. The inventor of modern men's suit and a founding father of contemporary menswear, he advocated black as a standard for men's evening wear. Since the LVD, other high fashion designers have used black as a staple in countless collections. Uh, still doing that today. In the second half of the 20th century, black became the color of rebellion. So when you think of like robbers and goths, anti-fashion, usually black. Designer Yohi Yamamoto said in a 2000 interview for the International Herald Tribune, black is modest and arrogant at the same time. Black is lazy and easy, but mysterious. Black can swallow light or make things look sharp. But above all, black says this, I don't bother you. Don't bother me. Hmm. Well, I know, I know, uh, most of the suits I have in my in my wardrobe are either black or or dark navy blue. So or mint green. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my one mint green jacket. Yep. That doesn't fit anymore. <laughs> Tell us about the cocktail this week. Well, the cocktail, of course, since this all happened in Baston, is called the Ward Eight, which is uh, one of the the wards in in Boston, and um, it is uh, it's a it's a take on the whiskey sour, so it's got uh, 
the traditional recipe is is rye whiskey, though of course you could use bourbon. A half ounce of fresh lemon juice, uh, but then we deviate from the sour recipe by also adding a uh, half ounce of orange juice, freshly squeezed, of course, and then a teaspoon of grenadine, which adds some sweetness, and you just pour the grenadine over the back of the spoon, which allows it to kind of float uh, float down to the bottom of the glass so that it looks layered. And we will uh, garnish that with a maraschino cherry. And originally... The, uh, the drink, and I, maybe it's still this way, if you were to go to Baston and buy it, it would be decorated with a small paper Massachusetts flag. Oh. Yes. So it's a whiskey sour, basically, with, with just a little bit uh, of sweetness. Mm-hmm. Cute. I want to go to Boston someday, so maybe I'll order one of those. Well, we should if we go there. We should. And uh, speaking of Boston, Baston. Uh, I looked up crimes in Boston. Ah. Uh, so, and when I was looking at that, I found FBI Boston history that broke it down by decade, pretty much. And mm-hmm. we just learned before we started recording that the FBI began in 1908. Yeah, and for some reason, I thought it was later than that. But no, you looked it up, and that's correct. Yep. So it started in the early 1900s, and at that time, the Boston FBI, would that be right? Boston FBI, or would that be like NBI, Massachusetts Bureau of Investigation? Well, it's it's probably the FBI from, you know, the FBI's regional offices all over, so that was probably their, their regional office in Boston. Okay. Well, that's who I'm talking about, so the FBI, I guess. They mainly investigated violations of the White Slave Traffic Act of 1910, which Mm -hmm. made the transportation of women across state lines for immoral purposes a federal crime. Mm -hmm. After the U.S.'s entry into World War I in 1917, the FBI started investigating sabotage and espionage and matters matters of subversion such as interfering with the draft or encouraging disloyalty among Americans. Mm-hmm. I thought all that was interesting. Yeah, and, and they made their name, of course. The FBI made their name during Prohibition uh, mm. by going after you know people like Al Capone and the gangsters of the 20s who were involved in the Prohibition or in illegal transportation of liquor. So that's when the FBI really became famous, when they okay. tracked in some of those famous criminals like John Dillinger and Al Capone and Pretty Boy Floyd and uh, people like that. Hmm. They were also looking into motor vehicle theft Yeah, in the 20s and 30s, as well as prohibition. So that was when like stolen cars became a thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Anytime, anytime a crime is is violated, it violates a federal statute or if it involves transporting crime across state lines, uh, that becomes a federal matter and the FBI can get involved Mm. today. And that's so can the FBI not get involved if a crime like stayed in Kansas? They could be asked for help, but they wouldn't have the jurisdiction to come in and take over and, and investigate. Unless there's some violation of federal law. Okay. In the 20s and 30s, there was also a rise of violent gangsters. That was actually mainly in the 30s. 
So the mm-hmm. Bureau instituted a war on crime in 1933. And I'll get into a couple Boston families, mob families in a bit. Okay. Uh, do you remember learning about the war on crime? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was, again, back during the Depression when there were a lot of bank robberies going on. That's why, uh, that's when the FBI got involved in that. Mm -hmm. In the 40s, we have, similar to the early 1900s, because of World War II, there was a lot of investigation into sabotage and disloyalty to the U.S., tampering with the draft, all of that, in the Mm -hmm. 40s again. Mm -hmm. 50s and 60s, we, of course, had the Brings Bank Heist in 1950. And the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list began on March 14, 1950. And since 1951, the Boston Division has had 21 fugitives on the list. So Boston it's, must must have been a hotbed for crime, huh? So that is a lot. I, yeah. I couldn't tell if that was a lot or not. Seems like it to me. Just because it's from one city? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Guess it is a lot then. In the 70s, we had anti-war violence with the hippies, you know, not... Pro- hippies protesting against the war and all that. Mm-hmm. 80s and 90s, uh, Boston's first drug task force was formed in June 1983. The New England Terrorist Task Force was formed in 86. There was a lot of organized crime. And there was the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist in 1990. And I think we mentioned that one during the train robbery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that one a little bit. Man, Boston, come on. Yeah. Stuff happening. Yeah. Finally, we have post 9 11, but I mainly wanted to mention that two of the hijacked planes flew out of Boston. So a lot of time, energy, and resources for the FBI division in Boston went toward that and Mm -hmm. the fact that two of the planes flew out of Boston. So. Yeah, I wonder if they were involved in the uh, in the investigation of Boston Marathon bombing. Oh, uh, I bet they were. It would have been in the late nineties, early two thousands. So. Mm-hmm. Was it that one long those, ago? One of those guys just had their their death sentence overturned by the court. <laughs> Why? I know I didn't really read the case. I just know that uh, the state. Or the federal or the government's appealing that decision to try to get the their his his death sentence reinstated. Hmm. Interesting. I'll have to look into that. Mm-hmm. As promised, here we are with the Boston criminal gangs. So the two I could find, I really couldn't find all that much about them. We have the Irish mob and the Patri Patriarcha family. Patri. Is that how you say that? Do you know anything about yeah, that? Yeah, that sounds, I, I've never heard of it, but that sounds like it. It sounds like the right uh, pronunciation. Okay. So the Irish mob, uh, they first really came around during Prohibition, and they were in Somerville, Charlestown, South Boston, or Southie, Dorchester, and Roxbury. And can I just say, I had no idea Roxbury was in boston and i know you know the only thing that i know about roxbury is the movie yes 
Yes. Mm-hmm. One of the best movies ever. Yeah. <laughs> not not for quality, just because it's dumb. It makes yeah. me laugh. And then another great movie about Boston is Goodwill Hunting with with Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. They're okay. from Boston, right? Yeah, yeah. He and Affleck, they're Southies, mm-hmm. or at least I think they are. They mm-hmm. say they are. There's that funny commercial with all the famous actors from Boston. Do you remember that commercial? It's pretty recent, and they were all talking in their accents. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember what it was for. I think it was a Super Bowl commercial yeah. a few years ago. Anyway, that's funny. Jim from The Office, he's one of them. The Irish Mob also had the Winter Hill Gang, which was one of the most successful organized crime groups in American history. They controlled Boston from the early 1960s to the mid-1990s. They were named after the Winter Hill neighborhood of Somerville. uh, And they were founded by the first boss, James Buddy McLean. And they are actually best known for fixing horse races in the northeastern U.S. Hmm. Interesting. The Patriarcha family, um, the stuff I could find about them was mainly just people's names of who've been it. And that was kind of boring to me. So I just put the following information. Uh, They are also known as the New England Mafia, Boston Mafia, Providence Mafia, or The Office. Not the TV show. I like um, the last one. What? I like the last one. The office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Reminds me of um, Ozark and how, mm-hmm. I don't know, it always, how they have like a front business, you know? Always yeah. I mean, I, I didn't realize that Boston was, was, was such a center of organized crime. You normally think of New York and New Jersey, at least mm-hmm. I do, as being where, uh, where it is. But of course, these were... These were a lot of people of Irish uh, descent, though there were some, uh, at least in the in the uh, Brinks robbery, a lot of a lot of Italian people, Italian descent as well. Uh huh. And uh, Rhode Island, the Patriarca family was based in Providence and Boston. Mm-hmm. Never think of Rhode Island with organized crime. At least I don't. Anything to add about mafia? No, no, I don't. Someday we'll have to do a an episode about mafia crime in Kansas City. Well, then we'll well if we do that, we're going to have to uh, put on masks and get some software that masks our voices. Because we live here. Yes, because I don't want to get hit. <laughs> Actually, you're right. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> I did find some information on other large value U.S. robberies. We have the Manhattan Savings Institution in 1878. Uh, It was $2.5 million or $67 million today, which included $12,000 in cash and the rest in securities. It was masterminded by George Leonidas Leslie and carried out by Jimmy Hope, Samuel Paris, and others. Then there's the United California Bank Robbery of 1972. It was $9 million or $56 million today in cash and valuables. This holds the current U.S. value record. You heard of that one? I have not. Do you know what happened? Did they Have they caught these people uh, from these I don't robbers? Know. Did you find I, that out? I should have looked more into them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Lincoln National Bank, Lincoln, Nebraska, 1930. 
2.7 million or 42 million today in cash and securities. That's close. Yeah. I think in Nebraska. This would have been about the time that your great grandfather was police chief in Hastings, Nebraska, which is just a little bit down the road from Lincoln. So maybe, maybe he was involved a little bit in the investigation of this. Maybe. He, I'm sure, at least knew all about it. Yeah, we may have a family link here. Yes. An, an interesting story about uh, your great-grandfather. Uh, he was police chief during uh, Prohibition. And uh, when, when they got word of somebody selling liquor or operating a still, he would call the newspaper reporters and they would make a big deal about showing him and his police force confiscating the liquor and breaking the bottles and taking an axe to the still. Um, But what they didn't realize was that uh, he and the rest of the police would take uh, half of that, half of the liquor that wasn't destroyed, they would take it home and then sell it out of their attic. So your great-grandfather Daly had a little side business going while he was police chief in Hastings. Something tells me times haven't really changed with that. No, probably Some illegal things. (laughs) That is funny, though. You know it shouldn't be illegal when the cops are going around the system, too. (laughs) Next, we have Dunbar Armored Robbery in L.A., 1997. $18.9 or $30 million today in cash. Current U.S. cash record. $18.9 million in cash. Why did that bank... Wait, what's an armored? What's an armory? What? Armory's guns. What's Dunbar, Dunbar armored? Armored armored trucks. You know, haven't you ever seen that? You pull up to a store and there's, an, there's a big truck there. And oh. that's, how, that's how these stores get their cash in the morning. They'll, they'll bring uh, an armored car or an armored truck. And uh, people, the, the guards will carry in cash. So they, they knocked they off. They stole all the cash from these trucks? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You'll see though, they're they're all over the place. In fact, you'll see a little hole on the side of these trucks. It's called a gun port. So the guards can stick their guns out through the side of the truck if they if they see crooks coming. How did they not have that in 1997? They probably did. They but who knows? They might have been overpowered. I don't know. Hmm, that would be an interesting one to look more into. Uh-huh. Hmm. Then of course we have the one we're talking about today. Uh, next, we have First National Bank of Arizona, Tucson, 1981, $3.3 million or $9 million today in cash. Then Seafirst Bank, Lakewood, Washington, 1997, $4.5 million or $7.2 million today in cash. And last but not least, 1998 Bank of America robbery, uh, $1.6 million or I guess it is technically the least, least amount. million today. Mm -hmm. How much cash do you think banks have in them at all times? I don't know. Because I kind of was under the impression they don't really have that much cash in the building. That's kind of my impression, too. Uh, It probably depends what time it is. Mm. What time of day, what time of the month. That would probably be when you'd have the most cash when deposits were being made. But you know, more and more today, we're we're in a cashless society. So who, who knows? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't plan on robbing a bank, so I don't want to Google that. Have it be on my computer. You know. Mm-hmm. 
There were some films based on this heist. You mentioned one, didn't you? In your story? Well, I said Ocean's Eleven. Oh, Ocean's Eleven, right. Which I mean, I don't know if it really was based, really based on, on this, but, you know, it's one of those intricately planned heists. So, mm-hmm. And people have compared this to Ocean's Eleven because of the intricate planning. Right, right. Well, films that were directly based on this. Yes. I, I can say that Fat Tony Pino looks nothing like George Clooney. Yeah. <laughs> I assume you'll be posting some pictures on our website of the Halloween masks and of some of the robbers. Yes, and I saw those masks, and they're creepy. They are. Ew. It's Halloween, too. Right, it is. Okay, the films. Six Bridges to Cross, 1955. Blueprint for Robbery, 1961. Brinks, The Great Robbery, 76. And The Brinks Job, 78. That's uh, old movies. Yeah. No no recent ones. Yeah, I don't think I've seen any of them, actually. Mm-mm. Maybe this episode will, will inspire someone to make a new film. Yeah. <laughs> and we can, and I can play Fat Tony Pino. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to make up a part for you. For right. Julia Roberts-like role. Or I could be the bank teller. Hmm. There you go. Probably more fitting. Yes. <laughs> well, let me see what we have next week. That's that's all we have for the Brinks Bank heist. Yeah, you know, I, I one thing I I do want to mention again. I mentioned in the story about the there's no honor among thieves. Um, you know, if these guys would have just funneled some money to Specs O'Keefe in jail, and got him got him a lawyer and and paid some, you know, paid him off. I don't think they ever would have been caught. The only reason they're caught is Specs O'Keefe got tired that they kept putting him off and not giving him, not sending him some money to pay his attorneys that, you know, just a few months before the statute ran out, he decided to talk. If they mm-hmm. would have spent, you know, probably ten or $20,000 on, on him, there never would have been any arrests made in this case. I mean, the FBI knew who did it, but they had no they had no evidence until Specs talked. So, man, <laughs> just keep keep your keep your peeps happy. You right. Know? Where do you think the money is? I think they just I, still I, have it. No, I'm guessing it's uh, it was hidden, and um, they they have they did find some bags, but the money had just disintegrated. Because they kept it in damp locations. I think the idea was they were going to age it. Mm. You know, if they would have started, if these guys would have started passing, you know, brand new bills around, I think it would have aroused suspicion. And I think they believed, well, let's, you know, let's stick this like in basements and in, uh, you know, inside walls and, and bury it and let the money age for a while so it doesn't look new anymore. But, you know, they, they weren't chemists. Mm-hmm. And, by the, you know, even when this money was found just a few months later, it was just it was it would crumble if you touched it. So uh, I, I'm guessing I'm guessing this money is uh, is gone forever. I don't think any of it's ever going to show up. It's just trash at this point. That's my thought. Yeah. I will say that after talking about all these bank robberies and heists, it sounds like so much more work 
to rob a bank and get all this cash than it does to just go to work and earn oh. money. <laughs> well, these guys had planned this over probably it took them about six to twelve months planning. They they had uh, you know they cased the building. They they used binoculars. They would make up reasons to go in the building and draw these diagrams. They snuck in one night. And this is what got me. They got in the building. They took out uh, locks off doors. Hmm. Uh, and then they uh, hired a locksmith nearby to stay open late. They took the lock, the inside of the locks to him. He made keys for them. And then they went back that same night and put the locks back. So, oh you know, they didn't, they didn't have to storm the building. but. They had planned this thing down to the last move. Mm-hmm. And as I said, if they just if they just would have uh, paid off Specs O'Keefe, no one would have ever caught him. But why? I, I don't understand why they didn't do that. They had to have known that he was going to talk. I mean, he'd been threatening to do it all along. And they had a they they had access to a million and a half dollars in cash or something like that. I mean, why not just funnel Mm-hmm. funnel him 20 or 30,000 and and uh, be done with it but they chose not to so greed. as smart as as smart as they were the greed uh made them a little bit no made them a lot stupid so mm-hmm. very weird never yeah. know what goes through people's heads mm-hmm. yeah next week we have a fun one what is that pray tell the Kansas City Union Station Massacre. Oh, yes. The Union Station Massacre in Kansas City. And if any of you folks ever come to Kansas City and go to Union Station, which is a great place to hang around and get something good to eat, um, you can go out on the south side of the building near the front doors and you can still see the bullet holes uh, in the granite facade. So, yes, we'll have some fun with that one. And next week, you'll know how they got there. Yes, we will. (laughs) Well, here's hoping for a big win tomorrow night by our Chiefs, but I'm not, I'm hoping, but not expecting it. So, well, I'm expecting it against the New York Giants, but we'll see. (laughs) But we might as well, we might as well give it our cheer anyway. Yep. Go Go Chiefs. Chiefs. (laughs) We'll see you all next week. Bye bye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. 